Last time we were together, we took a look at that passage in 2 Corinthians that illuminates the New Covenant ministry. And we got to observe Paul as he did his zoom out um, to reset in his place on the triumph march of Christ. Now his anguish had come on him as a result of no response from the his third letter sent to the Corinthians. And, um, and then he, he uh, began to teach about uh, this great triumph march in which God in Christ uh, leads us as his captains, as his captives. Uh, Paul doesn't use the first person singular uh, there. He, he uses the, the word we. And he's talking about all of us because um, when we do that, uh, by faith through grace in Christ we're included in that in that great triumph march and uh, we find we can we like Paul can uh, can zoom out from it get above it re- get reset and um, and discover uh, things like destiny our place in his glorious kingdom so Paul then wrote of the fragrance of Christ that emanates from us that that we leak his fragrance it's a life of of um, Life unto life, fragrance of that, it's a perfume, or it is an odor of death unto death. Now, we're not responsible for how others respond to that fragrance. But we are responsible to demonstrate his ways, his love, and his presence. Uh, verse 16 up in, in, um, in the previous chapter, uh, verse two, uh, chapter 2, excuse me, Paul left us with a question, which was, who's adequate for these things? Who's gonna? You know, how do we go ahead and make known in our daily, uh, out on our daily lives? Um, how does that unforgettable impact reach out to those around us? Now, Paul continued to declare that we have a reality that's true, undeniable, striking, and potent. We aren't like others who slice and dice scripture to make it acceptable pablum for listeners to make up comfortable doctrine and practice. Rather, we present ourselves as speaking and living out life in the presence of God to whom we answer. I was reminded of a live television broadcast that had Woody Allen interviewing Billy Graham. Now, there's, some, there's a contrast across the, spectrum, across the spectrum of the culture. And, and Woody's questions were very much like, So, Billy, what is your opinion of men and women living together when they aren't married? And, and Billy Graham consistently answered those leading questions with with his first words were this is what the scripture says this is what God revealed in the Bible he was answering the questions and laying those answers at the feet of the one who judges him not at the feet of the general public now what a great template that is there is undeniable reality of Christ for you the Christ you know the hope of glory so let's pray Holy Spirit by whom we have the text of scripture thank you you inspired the writers you superintended over the writers you preserved the text and kept it pure and powerful thank you for all the archaeological finds of 2000 years that point to uh, the authenticity of the word of god and the practice of trusting you for day-to-day release of the fragrance of christ please stir your word in us as we live and answer those who went those who those who we want to we want them to know christ 
and our and our fragrance is is going to reach out lord and and there will be a response there's also those that would push you aside and push us aside also lord prepares to minister to those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness in jesus name amen all right, so I'll grab your text of 2 Corinthians. We're going to start with chapter 3. And Paul starts with that first line that says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? So Paul had written to the, the ecclesias, to the, to the leadership teams and, and to the churches in the churches in, in Corinth and asking of them if they're really demanding letters of commendation regarding him and his references and his resume we heard of the confusion that, that happened in the churches as a result of the quote of christ uh faction unquote as well as that crowd that rolled into corinth who claimed apostleship they claimed the apostles who um, challenged paul's apostleship and character now it's likely that they carried letters from the sanhedrin in jerusalem to back their authority when Paul was known then as Saul of Tarsus, he carried such letters from the council as he took off to persecute the followers of the way in Damascus. Paul is asking the Corinthian churches again, do I need to send you letters from Peter, from James, from, from other apostles? Such letters of commendation are really common in the Greco-Roman world, but it was a way to, to put some authority behind an introduction. Now, Paul did that in Romans 16 when he introduced a woman named Phoebe who was a member of the church in Sancreia. Now, Sancreia was one of the port cities for Corinth. It's on one of the sides of the Isthmus, and, and there were churches, you know, four miles apart. Some of them in Sancreia, some on the other, other side of that town. And he was introducing Phoebe to the church in Rome. He did much the same thing to Timothy and Epaphroditus and... Uh, Onesimus, when he wrote a letter to Philemon. So Paul is aligned with his culture, but here in verse 1, he asks this question to clarify the relationship he has with the people in Corinth. Next, in verses 2 and 3, Paul leaps over the head of the evil workers, the accusers, even the heads of those who are walking, wandering around saying, well, you know, I don't have all my questions answered about Paul's character and his apostleship. They had some doubts. And so his answer is this, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifest that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not as tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. Now there's a shift of metaphor here. <laughs> the very lives of the Corinthian believers have been transformed by Christ, and now they were functioning as a visible demonstration to those around them that, that uh, God was alive within. The Spirit of God was alive within them. You know, they were a letter from Christ. The heart in Scripture is obviously the place of the inner man. It's the soul and the human spirit all sort of in the same spot, and it's there that God contacts and engages with humans. The believers in Corinth were communicating to all around them that they were a visible they were a visible declaration, a letter written on their hearts by the Spirit. Written words in ink can get tangled up, twisted up, misinterpreted. But these, uh, their the Corinthian hearts had been 
etched into their hearts that that they were followers of Jesus and that same etching process engraving process was in Paul's heart Paul's choice of the negative reference to the to the stones uh, the tablets of stone point back to Sinai to the giving of the law to the people of Israel regarding the tablets of stone of which the finger of God inscribed the Decalogue the the ten, the ten commandments so just prior to the giving of the law, the, Israel was camped around the base of Mount Sinai. And twice, the, the people were called out and gathered. And once they, 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 they said, yes, Lord, we will obey you. We will keep your, your ways. We will keep your countenance. We, you know, we will follow you. And then they were called out a second time. And they vowed that they would do that. Twice, they pledged themselves to the Lord. Then Moses disappears up the side of Mount Sinai into the cloud at the top of the mountain and the people waited and they waited some more and then they proceeded to forget their promises and built a golden calf to worship representing the God who led them out of Egypt when Moses returned from the mountains carrying those tablets of the law the people were in a frenzy of false worship Moses took those tablets and shattered them on the ground just dashed them on the ground and they burst into pieces. The imagery is one of human best efforts to match up with God's requirements, followed by open disobedience, guilt, and shame. Yes, that giving of the tablets came with glory. God's presence was up on that mountain. Now, Ezekiel would prophesy 600 years after the giving of the law to Israel Recording God's promises in chapter 11 sounds like this. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. He continues in chapter chapter 36 of Ezekiel. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant they made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out from the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So it was this new covenant that Jesus set about to introduce in his three years of ministry. When the leaders of Israel rejected that covenant and demanded the crucifixion of Jesus, that opened the door for the new covenant to be introduced to the Gentiles. Now we know from our studies in Zechariah and Joel that after the second coming of the Lord, he will fight for his people and Jerusalem will become secure and then they will receive his new covenant. We're blessed by the fact that we have a covenant of the heart, not a covenant written on stone. Verses 4 to 6 of chapter 3 says, And much confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. So here, here's Paul's answer to that, uh, that in verse 16 up above in chapter 2, where he says, who's adequate for these things? Who's equipped? Who's capable? 
Now it's coming from our soul with our own strength. Behind it, its destiny is failure. If that adequacy rise from the Spirit of God within us, we can do all things in Christ. That strengthens us. Now, he's made us his servants. And to stay with the, that picture of the, of the triumph march in Christ, We're, we are his captives. And we are called to serve a new covenant of the forgiveness of sin, of the removal of sin and shame, of the cancellation of our past faults, both known and unknown. We serve the new covenant because of the spirit that gives us life. And in Christ, by Holy Spirit, we are made adequate for all things. Now, think with, if, think with me for a minute about characters in Scripture that openly professed their inadequacy. Moses kept telling the Lord that he was inadequate, and the Lord should choose. You know, Moses said, you know, Moses says, I stutter. I can't, I'm not, I can't talk good. Find somebody else to lead this exodus. Gideon argued and questioned the angel of the Lord because he said he was the least of his family and his tribe was the least in Israel. Isaiah cried out over his uncleanness after being exposed to the Lord and his train in the temple. Ezekiel is rocked by his vision of the wheel, wheels and eyes and cries at his lack of understanding. Now, of course, we are inadequate in the natural. But with the Lord's indwelling spirit paired with our weakness and all that offered up to God, the, the kingdom of God is advanced. Now, here in the middle of that last phrase in verse 6 is the word, quote, the letter, unquote. So scholars for a couple hundred years have argued over what is that word and how does it fit and how are we supposed to understand it, translate it, and nobody knows. Nobody agrees. And in the same period of time, the last couple of hundred years, people in churches have pretty consistently had a, had a section of within each church or within those denominations of individuals that said, I want more freedom. I want more of what the culture around me is offering. And then they would use that phrase, the letter kills, to throw back at individuals in the church fellowships that held to a tight line to no alcohol, no tobacco, no recreational drugs. You know, how about the use of bundling boards? You know, or whatever the hot point was for dissension. Okay? Now, I don't believe that's what the text is saying at all. I think that's a complete dog trail. Okay, but rather I think the phrase, quote, the letter, unquote, speaks of something external. And the, quote, spirit gives life, unquote, is internal. Now, we have a long history of the church that has focused on what not to do. That, those are the externals. And we have a relatively short history of the post uh, Cain is it Cain Ridge? Shoot. I think it's called, it was called Cain Ridge in Kentucky. Now I'm sitting here, I'm, I may have mistaken that. I'll find out. It was a Cain Ridge revival and then the post Azusa Street revival and then the Welsh Revival and the Shantung Revival and the post-Toronto and Brownsville Revivals and the current ongoing San Diego outreach and outpouring and on and on that speak of the power of the Spirit of God within us 
to accomplish the outliving of the new covenant. Now, a long list of differences between the old covenant and the new, the new covenant. Okay, the short is of it is that uh, those serving under the old covenant had no power to overcome sin, to overcome shame, and, and none with which to keep God's law. Those who minister under the new covenant do so not in the natural, but in the spiritual realm in which Holy Spirit makes sure that, that, that he leads us in ways where there seems to be no ways. Because we're already accepted by the Father. Our hearts have been changed from stone to flesh. In verses 7 to 11, there's a whole set of contrasts between the ministry of death and the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of righteousness. Says this, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved in stone came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with, joy, with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory in account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away with glory, much more that which remains in glory. Now, Paul argues, from the least to the greatest. The least in the realm of glory was the law when it was given. And, and that law is, is such that there's a death penalty when we sin. We, and it, it puts the disobedient under a curse. The effect of the law was to increase transgressions. Transgressions is the word that means we made a, a willful choice. We thought about it, and then we did it. So it's a willful choice to, to do the wrong thing, to feel the wrong way, to act the wrong way, to, to uh, imagine the wrong stuff. Okay, That's called transgression. Okay, And so uh, the effect of the law was to increase transgression, the in, intentional wrong choices resulting in death. Law could not give life for it had no power to do so. Now the law, according to Paul in the book of Romans, is the law is holy, it is just and it is good. But it cannot penetrate hearts. Nevertheless, the giving of the law to Israel came with glory, and Moses, having been with God on the mountain, had a face that brightly displayed the glory of God, so much so that the people couldn't look at his face. They said, don't, you know, you've got to cover up. We can't, you know, it was, it was shining so brightly they had to turn away from him. Now that shining glory faded away in time, as did the glory of the giving of the law. So Paul sets the contrast by asking if indeed the ministry of the Spirit is to fail and to fade away as well? And the answer is, not so. It will display even greater glory. Paul flips back to the law and its ministry of condemnation, of putting everyone in the seat of the sinner for that which is... For, there's no cure for that. The blood of bulls and goats don't take away my sin. Rather, the, the ministry of righteousness accompanied by the unique Son of God, saving, healing, delivering men and women from sin and guilt and shame. It causes praise to roar out in heaven and more glory to accrue to the Father. That righteousness is imparted to you 
as a free gift, bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. You now stand before the Father with no shame and no guilt. All that has been swept away by the righteousness that clothes you. Now the word, the wording Paul uses here is to point to abounding glory that far exceeds what man can do, what the law could do, and focuses on what God can do in us and through us. That is great glory that does not fade and remains. So when I introduced this series, I mentioned that it had been a life-changing thing for me to get exposed to this, the New Covenant ministry here in 2 Corinthians. I was raised in an evangelical household where, you know, there were on the table there were there was a a dish and inside of that were scriptures that we were memorizing. Uh, we attended church twice a week. Uh, there were um, church-based clubs that took took the the place of of uh, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts. The church, they had a different name for them that they did them in the in the church, and at uh, and all you know all the way through high school, you know I I was reminded frequently that. Yeah, um, I I, uh, I needed to be a good witness for Jesus Christ. So I spent most of high school years working on mastering all that external stuff. <clears throat> my focus on external Christianity did not sustain my walk with God at Berkeley. When I was awash in failure, I turned to the Lord and cried out, and there was significant restoration. Uh, at the end of my senior year, I joined a campus ministry. Um, that was a huge, huge leap from where I thought I'd been going to where the, this next thing that the Lord had for me. Um, but that organization really never talked about uh, the role of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the infilling of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, and so on. My, my first exposure to that sort of came slowly through that pastoral internship spent, uh, Jan and I were part of the pastoral internship thing at Peninsula Bible Church, and, and I was taught about the inner life of the Spirit and New Covenant ministry. Now, some of our mentors were the older older pastors, and, uh, and they would periodically come to staff meeting, and uh, one in particular, his name was Bob, he had a, um, a long-term heart problem, and angina, and he would Night after night, he would have horrible chest pain, and he would just describe crawling into the arms of the Lord, and then the and then hearing the word of the Holy Spirit of how I mean how he was cared for, and and you know and he was able to just relax in the Lord's arms. Now he he and others clearly had a relationship with Holy Spirit. They just never taught about it, and they never imparted that to anybody else. And when they passed. There wasn't anybody to continue that, that statement, that, that speaking of truth. And I recall, you know, at that time, I labored joyfully through the, the Jesus movement days. I saw many, many people, old and young, come to Christ, uh, taught the assurance of salvation, the sufficiency of the blood of Christ to take away sin and shame, um, taught the scriptures very frequently, and, and studied for principles in the scripture to live by. And therein lay the ministry of death. Uh, 
Because principles can be right and true and even godly, but without Holy Spirit empowering the heart to change, you just sort of log it in your head. It doesn't change your heart. And there isn't any transformation by Holy Spirit at work and you know within me and, and and it left me with these principles that sort of left me flat and powerless and and stuck knowing that there was more to the walk with Christ uh, but I honestly didn't have a clue how to extend that so I you know I sort of just lived with it because there weren't any resources around me at the time <clears throat> now it, it is that Jesus movement passed um, I saw marriages fail I saw those who were who had been led to the Lord just the years before. Uh, they would turn away from God. Some of them turned back to drugs. Some of them went and chased dollars in, in Silicon Valley. And some became divisive in the midst of that body. And it wasn't until Jan began to uh, earnestly seek Holy Spirit following the birth of Ryan with Down Syndrome that uh, uh, there, was, there was really something for us to to begin to search after that and uh, I was swept along in that in that search I ended up Jan would make suggestions I'd go okay we'll go check that out um, nine years later ten years later um, I ended up uh, pastoring a church on the coast and the elders that I inherited when I came to that pulpit were um, older men who were absolutely committed to maintenance mode ministry uh, we were a small group of believers, uh, and they they had some priorities. Their priorities were they want to keep us all together. They don't want to lose anybody. They want to keep that attendance record the same, and and they want to keep you know their tithes and offerings coming in. And there really was no thought given to the forty thousand people that surrounded us in that town who didn't have a clue about who Jesus was. Um, now, uh, in the middle of that. Jan had struck up a relationship with a godly woman who'd urged her to go to where Holy Spirit was at work. And admittedly, that was pretty risky. That was, if anybody finds out, I'm fired. <laughs> but um, it was risky because we barely had a relationship going and with an understanding of what, what Holy Spirit wanted to do in us and around us. So I began to take vacation days. I'd take three days, four days, and we would fly somewhere across the country for revival meetings, for conferences, for healing meetings. And we saw people being saved by the hundreds, these waves of people who had pushed forward. And and they would, in the midst of their crying out, they would be healed. Some of them were just desperately to be healed. And they were delivered of demonic entities. You know, they, they really had made some wrong choices and their lives were being controlled uh, by darkness. And that observing that over and over again it changed us it was a, a revelation to discover that God's desire was to deposit his presence into me so that I could work out my salvation with fear and trembling leaning on his presence and relying on his power and we began to get excited about the possibility of being filled with Holy Spirit and the new covenant ministry and then kind of watch and see what God did with it but it became clear that the elders in that congregation were absolutely committed to keep things the way they were. They were not going to change. I resigned. And that thrust me into a doctoral program where I specialized in revivals and awakenings 
that were global, anywhere in the world where the Lord was doing something amazing. Um, that resulted in going to Canada. There were five trips to Argentina, to Ethiopia, to Uganda, to Mozambique, and Brazil. Jan went to Argentina, Malawi, South Africa, and India, and then on to Brazil with us. So, at the same time, God raised up uh, our sons to experience and exhibit that inner life of the Spirit. And it changed our whole family. The last 20 years have been amazing seeing what Holy Spirit has done and what he longs to do. Uh, he gave us a 10-year lab course of, of uh, applying the New Covenant and seeing what Holy Spirit would lead us to do in the town where we lived over on the coast. So Forge family, uh, it is this combination of the presence of God by Holy Spirit and this passage of 2 Corinthians that I believe is really timely for us. The Lord longs to shift us from externals, from, if you will, ministry metrics, to his way of the heart. For some of us, uh, the lessons have already sprouted up in us and, and we've begun to bear fruit. So my, my exhortation to you is keep going. Your character and your integrity, plain to see, and your priority of people are more important than things, uh, that's evident as well. So keep going on those. You know, draw on the imagery of that triumphant march where we are following the Lord in his triumph. And also with the, that imagery out of chapter 2, it talked about a, the pot that had uh, set in the, in the bright sunlight. All of us have cracks. All of us have little patches. Some of it's secret stuff, we, and we're not even aware of part of the time. But when that happens, when we become aware of this, this broken thing in us, that's when we turn to the Lord and have him remake us. Yes, there have been, there's been uh, glory given to God even in our disciplined pursuit of externals. What Holy Spirit is offering is more of him, more of him working in and through us toward our own transformation and that of our families, our neighbors, our cities, our regions, and beyond. That latter bit about Holy Spirit brings much greater glory to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, by faith, I'm sure that none of us want to remain with only the external expressions of our walk with God. We all want more of you. We want to so shine before you, Father, with no fading away that we are like stars in the heavens. We're not here to get more information, Lord, but we want more impartation to the heart to empower us to live out the new covenant. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I think I did everything right there, except turn this on. Oh, no. <laughs>